You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Well, it's good to be here, and uh, thank you for coming. I know so many of you are coming from different kind of church backgrounds and liturgical backgrounds and musical backgrounds and all kinds of things, and I don't take that for granted. So uh, really appreciate I'm honored and humbled that you would come uh, here. A little bit about me. Uh, I'm the worship pastor at a church in Austin called Real Life, and uh, I've been there for exactly three months. <laughs> so um, I, I was at a church in St. Louis called The Journey, and uh, I have five kids, so about a year ago we had our fifth and started asking God for a community that we could go move back home where all my wife's family is, and so we did that just three months ago. God just opened up an opportunity. We moved there, my wife, my kids, my band, all of our kids, and we sort of all just made the trek down to Texas as a big, huge horde of people, and uh, so that's, that's pretty exciting. Um, yeah, so I've been leading worship for about 15 years now, and I grew up in the church from the time I was about negative nine months old. I was in the church every time the doors were open, uh, so like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, supper and prayer, and even, you know, Friday night lock-ins or week-long revivals, which is really just another way of saying we're going to have church every night of the week uh, for a week, or the child version of that, Vacation Bible School, um, kind of the whole deal. And uh, as I got older, I uh, got into the youth group, puppet, you know, puppet team, choir, orchestra, all of it. I mean, I was thoroughly churched, but uh, my faith really didn't become my faith until I was in high school. My dad had just left, and uh, wasn't in any kind of like super hyped uh, experience. I was just laying on my bed listening to an album. And um, there's this one song by a band called Jars of Clay, who you probably may know. And uh, the lyrics said, did you really have to die for me? All I am for all you are. And uh, something about that hit me in a really unique way. It was the first time I really remember God using music to impact me and change my world, my whole worldview. And I just started weeping, and there in my bedroom, fell to my knees and started crying out, God, whatever you want to do, I'm yours. Use me however, uh, however you want to, you know? And, uh, and so, even still, it never really connected that I would want to do music for the church, right? I mean, it was not even in my world. I hated church music. I hated going to church. I didn't want to go to church. I was in church all the time, but for me, it was this hand-wavy guy who was sort of directing a choir and directing an orchestra, and it was kind of stand-up, sit-down, stand-up, sit-down, stand-up, sit-down calisthenics that were really rote and kind of boring and lifeless uh, to me. And so uh, church music was just not something that me as a kid... I uh, wanted anything to really uh, do with, and then even in youth camp setting, it was kind of the way it still was. I was in Oklahoma, it was a very non-progressive state at the time, and so even youth camp, this hand-wavy guy doing like epic timpani solos to the like, the, the, the hymn Saved, you know, so he'd be like, oh, I'm saved, you know, saved, and all these students are kind of going, I don't know what to do with this, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm listening to all these different kinds of music, but this isn't even anything that I would want to listen to in my normal, you know, day daily life. Uh, so church music never really 
entered my mind as something that I would want to pursue in ministry. I knew I was called to ministry, but I had no idea what that would look like. And then my sophomore year in high school, I saw my first like real band lead worship. And I remember thinking, that is so cool. I could totally do that. If that's, I mean, it was just the first time I'd heard music that talked about Jesus and really gave me a language to communicate worship and adoration and thanksgiving uh, in a way that I like to listen to as well. It was kind of my language musically, you know. And I remember thinking, I, I would love to do this, but every student in high school wants to be in a band, <laughs> you know. And so started praying, God, if this is what you want from me... Uh, show me, give me an opportunity, help me out. And and just a few weeks later, my youth pastor came and said, I would really like for us to start doing music in our student ministry. Would you lead some music uh, in our youth ministry? And so and so that's what I did. Uh, and those few first few years were really, 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 really bad. Uh, I had no real, like, uh, in anything to draw from apart from this band that I saw leading worship. And so um, I would, I would kind of jump around like the rock band and slap my thigh like the rock band and, and sort of, but the problem was that the rock band is all like wearing leather pants and like a, a studded sleeveless shirt that showed off their ripped arms and all that kind of thing like that. And so I was just like, eh, I'm not going to do that, right? I, I can't do that. And luckily I had a coach uh, in our student ministry who, who sort of helped speak to me about how I could be less distracting by not jumping around, and and uh, and so uh, it's just sort of feeling it out. And um, I didn't play an instrument, so I started uh, learning to play the guitar and trying to write songs that I could express uh, these feelings and these thoughts that I had uh, coming out. And I remember the first song I ever wrote that I led for my student ministry was called "Faithful Daddy," and uh, it's as bad as it sounds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The lyrics, I think, were faithful daddy, faithful daddy, faithful daddy, really repetitious. And then, and then here's the kicker. You've been so faithful to me. And that was pretty much the sum total. You just, you know, repeated that over and over and over again. And uh, so it was really bad. And I was just like pouring my heart out and weeping in front of my youth ministry. And they're all just like, what's happening right now? You know, this isn't good music. And uh, so and for all of you who've maybe thought about writing songs but haven't given it that first shot, uh, just know your first few attempts are probably not going to to be awesome, but that will never be as bad as Faithful Daddy. And so uh, I'm just really, um, I'm just really grateful that God helped helped me to kind of stick it out through those really awkward years. And it wasn't just awkward for me, because this was sort of the beginning of what we call like the modern worship movement, right? It was really traditional, and then here we are, we're trying to move into something that's a little more uh, modern, a little more like what my modern musical sensibilities can uh, tolerate and even enjoy, and so not just me in my personal journey, but even just the church at large was sort of going through this transition, and we started to have these worship wars. And so traditionalists were really ruthlessly defending, keeping the traditions. And then, uh, then there were these other, this other camp that was kind of ruthlessly trying to, to plot ahead and do something innovative and do something really, really creative. And what we got instead of, uh, for, for a long period of time, there was this transitional period of blended music that was really sort of gaudy and, and, and bad. And I remember uh, going uh, one year to my grandmother's church and the, the worship leader, the worship pastor, music pastor, whatever you want to call him, um, 
he was just, God bless him, trying to do the best he could with the tools he had. So he took I'll Fly Away, the hymn, and he blended it with Lenny Kravitz, I want to get away, I want to fly away, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I just remember going, what is happening? This is terrible. Uh, we've got to do better. We can do better. And that's when Passion and Hillsong and Hillsong United and all that came out. And they started really actually plotting, you know, plowing new ground for uh, creating art that sort of spoke to us emotionally and in ways. But, but there, the, in, in a lot of ways, maybe threw out the baby with the bathwater, right? We stopped trying to, to draw from the generations of history, of, of, of theologian pastors who are writing our songs who went before us for this emotional, uh, really uh, uh, multi-sensory experience of, of music, right? And there was a lot of really great stuff that happened that came with that, but there was a lot of things that now all of a sudden what was once and, and, and sort of historically had been a very pastoral, intentionally shepherding type role within the church where the pastors were leading the songs and the pastors were planning the order of worship and the liturgy now is just replaced by who is the most talented musician, who can actually sing, who can really take us there emotionally, who can really hype up the service because they've got the voice of an angel, right, or can play that instrument really, really well. And this is something that our culture does and we as individuals automatically already do really, really well. We tend to find who are those people who are the most talented that we can sort of put on a pedestal and exalt and appreciate and affirm and applaud and uh, I mean, it, it's you just see it all over television, even with reality TV. We had American Idol for a long time, and sort of not, now that's sort of going away. But now it's been replaced with The Voice and America's Got Talent, and all kinds of different avenues where we can find who are those really talented, really exceptional musicians and vocalists and things like that, so that we can ascribe value and ascribe worth to them. And the problem with this is that. The applause of man can be really intoxicating and it can be really addicting. And so we begin to work not not for the affirmation of the Lord, but for the applause of men. And uh, our churches aren't much different than that. Our Sunday mornings aren't much different than that. We, We really love worship leaders who are really good at what they do. And this conference is filled with them for sure, absolutely. But maybe you're not in a church like that. And so you just get beat down and depressed and sad and angry, even and bitter, uh, because people don't respond to your worship leadership th- that, that kind of way. They don't affirm you. They don't ascribe value to what you're doing. They don't applaud you. You look at these worship leaders who have now been put on this pedestal and are celebrated, and you kind of wonder, why not me? Why don't I have that kind of encouragement? And so you grasp for it and you fight for it and somehow feel like we're lesser if we don't have that. And so today, whether you're like a hipster, cool worship leader with the skinny jeans and the summer scarf and a tattoo or whatever, or you're like a you know, hand-wavy guy who wears a three-piece suit and has the Pavarotti voice and a George W. Bush comb over, like the, 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 the truth is you probably struggle with keeping the main thing the main thing and remembering that you're not the main thing. And so... I call this uh, rock star worship leader syndrome. 
Um, I did write a book. I, I, I helped Matt write Doxology and Theology, and I wrote a book called Worship Leaders, We're Not Rock Stars. And consequently, that's why this is the, that, um, that's the name of this breakout. But the idea is that we struggle with placing way too much emphasis on our own preferences, on our own applause, on our own approval, on our, on our ideal job, on our ideal church, on our ideal pastor, on our ideal situation, and really on ourselves putting all of our value and worth in our worship leader functionality. And it really boils down to pride. And so I just wanted to read a few of the warnings that scripture gives us all throughout about pride. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. James 4 says God opposes the proud. Talk about being a worship leader when God's opposing you, amen? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Amos 6 says that God abhors pride. Obadiah 1 says that pride in our hearts deceives us. Every time the New Testament writers begin to talk about kind of that list of top sins, pride is always at the top of the list, right? It's because it's a cancer. It really makes us cynical and robs us of wonder and awe. It distracts us from the gospel and it separates us from God and blinds us to the beauty of who he is, what he's done, who we are in light of that, and really blinds us to the privilege and the honor and the joy that it is that God has allowed us to lead his church in worship. A lot of us really feel like this is our right, like we've earned it somehow. And it's not that way at all. Pride shows up in a lot of different ways. Some ways are more obvious. Some ways not so obvious. It can show up in picking apart other worship leaders. It can show up in that new worship leader has a record out and you just roll your eyes. Or someone says, hey, I'm doing this one worship leader's song in my church this week. And you sort of kind of shrug your shoulders and get mad. You're, I would never do that that worship leader's song in my church. That's, I would never do that. And you kind of get angry at people. You can't comprehend why people would be gravitating toward this certain person's ministry. Or it shows up in spending every Monday morning just wishing that God would send you to a church where people actually understood you and they actually responded to the way that you're leading them in worship. Or how about on Friday afternoon when you get that text from your pastor and he says, hey, I'm going to go a little long this week. I need you to cut a song. <laughs> and you're just like, you know, I'm not going to cut a song. You need to cut your sermon short. <laughs> All of us have been there, right? Shows up how whenever something goes wrong and you've planned how you think is really, really good and it just doesn't seem to connect. It doesn't seem to go right. You bomb. You, you have just, uh, you, you forget to move your capo and the rest of the band is playing in a different key than you or something like that. And your just world collapses. You get depressed and angry. Um, or you get judgmental towards someone that God is choosing to use to impact the world in ways that you just wish God would choose to use you to impact the world. You get fearful about how what will people think if I actually step out and do something with this gift that I feel like the Lord has given me? And so you just are paralyzed with fear and you won't do a single thing because you're worried that people are going to judge you or label you a self-promoter or they're going to say your record or your song or your whatever is not good enough, right? And it's a different kind of reverse pride that says, I don't want to be judged, so I'm not going to put myself out there and do anything consequential for the kingdom. 
But the thing is, we will never get over ourselves as long as we're still looking at ourselves. We need to look at someone who is better than we are, someone who is stronger than we are. We will always be dissatisfied with where we are, always longing for more, always feeling like we deserve more and angry at people who have more. Because we can't stop comparing ourselves to others. And so we need to stop looking at ourselves and stop looking at others and start looking at Jesus. The truth is that nothing that we have is deserved. There's not one piece in me that was worthy of God setting his sights on me and saying, I choose him and I'm going to rescue him and I'm going to redeem him and I'm going to adopt him. It's all grace. There's nothing in, him, in me that caused him to want to save me. In the Psalms it says that the Lord is in heaven. He does as he pleases. Another way of saying that is that God does what makes him happy. Right? God didn't rescue me because I deserved it. God rescued me because it made him happy. He redeemed me and adopted me because it made him happy. It made Jesus happy to take on all my cynicism and all my pride and all of my bitterness and place it on his shoulders so that he could make me more and more like himself. It made him happy to give me a greater worth than I could ever ask or imagine that is outside of my worship leader functionality. The worth that I have in Jesus is far greater than any worth that any person could put me on a pedestal and try to ascribe to me, right? The, worship, the, the worth that I have is not found in my position as a worship leader, but in my position as a child of God. I put so much emphasis on my talent and finding the worth that I think I deserve because I don't understand that that is the main thing. That the main thing is who Jesus is and who I am in light of that. Do we realize that the God who invites us to worship Him the God who invites us to spend time with him is a father who gave his only son, Jesus Christ, that he might make sons and daughters of us. And an infinite cost to himself. It wasn't some light thing that Jesus would lay down his life. That Jesus would experience the wrath of God that we deserved. It was, it was a huge thing. And so why are we trying to aim at a greater identity than the fact that we have been purchased by that kind of God at infinite cost to himself? Anyone can become famous. Anyone. I mean, for whatever reasons, for whatever, if, if Lou, that guy in Orlando that did the Making the Band show and put NSYNC together and put Backstreet Boys together, if he can kind of like create an entity and say they're going to be famous, then anybody can be famous, right? But no one can deserve, no one can earn the worth that comes from being a son and daughter of God. Let me assure you, there's no identity we could create or build or earn that is greater than the fact that we have been created in the image of God. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus and redeemed by his blood. We've been adopted into his family. We've been filled with his spirit. We've been set out on his mission for the glory of a name that is far greater than any name that has ever been known and far greater than the one on my license. There's no greater privilege than the fact that we get to make much of this God because we're redeemed and adopted sons and daughters. I've got five kids. 
uh, two older girls, 11 and 8, that we had biologically, and then God just kind of set our eyes on these two boys from Ethiopia that we adopted three years ago. And I think about the fact that um, I don't mean to be like socially awkward or politically incorrect, but Jude and Liam didn't choose us. They had no idea we existed. They, they, they knew that they needed parents. But they, didn't, they weren't like on the internet like searching for Stephen and Amanda Miller to come and be their dad and their mom. They weren't writing us letters asking us. They didn't choose us. They had no idea that we were on the other side of the world and we were filling out mountains of paperwork and raising tens of thousands of dollars and going through all the incredible, painstaking, uh, just mm, that is involved in adopting children. And they didn't choose us. We chose them. They didn't know we were on the Internet looking at their pictures and praying for them every single day. They didn't know that we were saying we wanted to adopt those two boys. We wanted to make them our sons. They didn't earn that. They didn't choose us. And you know what? Just like they didn't earn their way into our family, nothing that they could have done could have made them my sons. They can't do a single dang thing to reverse that process. They will always be my sons. Legally and in every other way. I love them the way I love my daughters. I love them the way I love my one-year-old baby boy. And it's not because of who they are. Jude, my eight-year-old boy, is an amazing kid. He's really charismatic. Everyone loves him. He's bubbly. He's fun. He's ridiculously good at every sport he tries. And yet, that's not why I love him. My son Liam is six. He's about the cutest little thing you've ever seen in your life. If you saw him, you would say, wow, that is the cutest little thing I've ever seen in my life. I guarantee you, I will show you a picture after this and you'll say, wow, that is the cutest little thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's true. And that's just how he is. He's just really, really loving and and, and he's got so much charisma and he's just caring. And yet that's not the reason I love my son. I love my son because he's my son. And that's good news for them because they're little terrors sometimes, right? They're little balls of depravity sometimes. And sometimes it's a lot for me to just like my kids, right? Because they're just always loud and bickering at each other and things like that. There are days like that. And so it's good news for them that I love them and that nothing is going to change that. Nothing is going to change the fact that they're my kids And isn't it amazing that this is the picture that the Bible gives us about our relationship with the Father? We didn't earn our way into the family of God. No amount of being a great worship leader, no amount of being like a really moral person or doing the right things or saying the right things or having really eloquent corporate prayers or being able to sing like an angel, none of that earns our way into the family of God. The Father made us His sons and daughters because it made Him happy to make us His sons and daughters. The Father chose before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 says, He set His eyes on you guys and He said, I want them and I want to make them my sons and daughters and nothing that they can do is going to change that. And so even at this weekend, if you just go and you get on that platform and you just bomb and it's terrible, you have that moment where they're filming you and, and, and 
and the video goes viral that you forgot to change your capo and the whole band didn't go with you. I mean, that could be you this weekend. And yet, while some people might laugh or make fun or criticize or whatever, God's still going to say, that's my kid. Because that's your identity. It's greater than anything you could earn for yourself. It's greater than any kind of performance that you could perform. You're a son and a daughter that's been redeemed and adopted. It's not an analogy. This is a reality. The family of God that he created, that he put together, you weren't his sons and daughters. Now you are his sons and daughters. That is more real than your blood family here on this planet. They might abandon you. Jesus never will. This family that God has put together is more real than our blood family. So even whenever your people kind of freak out if you don't quite perform, God still loves you. And that's a greater identity that you can have. And so our role is not to be perfect worship leaders. Our role is to be sons and daughters who stand in awe of God and worship Him and follow Jesus. And what did Jesus do? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What is the life that Jesus led? What did Jesus do? If you read Matthew 6, he's talking about what does it look like to have a relationship with God. And he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before people to be seen by people. But instead, go to, go to secret. Go to God in prayer in secret. Worship God in secret. Give in secret. Do all of these things in secret where people can't praise you for it. Here's this platform and people are applauding you and they're affirming you and they're giving you, they're ascribing worth and value to you. And Jesus is saying, watch out for that. Watch out for being rock star worship leaders. How about you just go worship in private where no one can see and no one can tell you how great you are for it. And we see this over and over and over and over again with Jesus's life. He didn't find his value in having, I mean, if Facebook was around, then it, didn't, it wasn't in how many likes he got. If Twitter was around, then it wasn't how many followers he had. He had 12, you know, and he had a lot more at some points, and then they would abandon him. And then he had a lot more at some points, and then they would abandon him. And even some of his 12, they all scattered as he hung on a cross. So people are fickle, but God is not. And so where did Jesus draw his breath from? Where did Jesus draw his, his, his power from? Was it from the crowds or was it from the time in secret with the Lord, with the Father? He didn't, I mean, if, if, we, if, if we could find a person who was the epitome of public ministry, it would be Jesus, right? He was constantly preaching, constantly healing, constantly eating with sinners, constantly doing all kinds of things. He was a busy guy, but before he chose his apostles, he went up onto the mountain and prayed all night long. Before he would do certain things, he would go into a garden and he would pray all night long. He would spend time with the Father. He would draw his breath from the Father, worshiping in private, ministering to his soul in private, praising God in private was far more important to him than his public ministry. And it is for us as well. If Jesus is this way, how much more so do we need to be this way? We need to beware of practicing our righteousness in public to be seen by men and be a lot more mindful to spend that time in secret, to spend that time in private because what happens in private is most important. Who you are when no one's looking is the most important thing about you. Jesus didn't serve publicly to be affirmed or accepted or even to try to earn his worth before God. He knew who he was. He knew he was the son of God. 
When he was baptized, and you read this account in John, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus and he's coming up out of the water, what happens? A voice from heaven, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus knew who he was. He knew he was the Son of God. He knew his identity was found as a Son of God and that that was far more important than anything he would ever do publicly. He knew the Father delighted in him. He knew he pleased his Father. And I think we need to remember that if we're going to be effective in ministry whatsoever and really at the end of the day, if we're actually going to to finish this race well. We need to understand who we are. We need to get away with the Father and be worshipers before we're worship leaders. We're not exempt from this time that we must spend with God. He wants our hearts, not a show. And it is a show. If you get up every Sunday and you lead worship in a public platform and you don't spend time worshiping in private, it's a show. It's the worst kind of hypocrisy that there is. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's what it means to be a worship leader. It's not to have songs in the top 100 CCLI. It's not to have a number one song on iTunes. It's not to be able to preach at a conference like this. It's not to be able to do any of those things. It's not even to be at your ideal church with the ideal relationship with your ideal pastor making your ideal salary, right? Those are all good things. Those are great things. I pray that God gives you those things, but they're not the goal. They're good, but they're not the goal. Those are good, but they're not the prize. The prize is Jesus. The goal is not to be rock star worship leaders. The goal is not to be thought of well by a lot of people. The goal is Jesus. He's our prize. Until we see him as as our greatest treasure and draw near to him, we're just going to be missing it over and over and over again. If we're not worshipers before we're worship leaders, we're just going to be missing it over and over and over again until we realize that God is a loving and sovereign father who's adopted us as sons and daughters into his family and we rest in that identity that we can't earn a greater one than that 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 is our greatest identity until we understand who we are we're just going to keep missing it over and over and over again and so just let me ask you where you sit just bow your head close your eyes I know this is a small group Um, we're a family here but I just want you to rid yourself of distraction and just spend some time here in silence and ask God are you my greatest treasure are you the prize for me am I content in you where am I dissatisfied in where you've put me Where am I not believing that my greatest identity is found in Jesus Christ? Let's let His Spirit speak to you and convict you where you're believing the lies about God, yourself, and His church and convince you of what's true. Affirm and encourage you in ways only He can.
God, thank you that we can't earn a greater identity than we have been created in your image, bought with your blood, adopted into your family, filled with your spirit and sent out on your mission. Thank you that you're a God who keeps his promises and that we can fully and at all times trust you. Thank you that you're the name above all names, the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords, and that you've given us grace above all grace in making us your own. Consume us with a passion for your name and your fame. Would you ruin us for less and not let us settle for fake semi-glory, but give us a hunger for the only glory that will endure into eternity. The light of Jesus Christ that will never fade or fail. Thank you, God, that you're patient with us. You understand that we're dust. Help us remember that we're dust. Dust doesn't get a big head about itself. But God, you formed this dust into your image and gave us breath so that we could be worshipers. So make us that for the name and glory of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys. I'm going to open this up for some Q&A. I think we have a little bit of time um, on that and I was told I'm supposed to have a little time for that. So anyone have any questions? I, I really tried to focus on our foundational identity over our, our functional roles as a worship leader. There's definitely time for that. Um, if that's questions that you have, um, anything of that nature, just go for it. I guess I did a good job. Hey, um, yeah. So my question, I'm, I'm thinking this out in my head as I'm asking it, but um, <coughs> my thing as a worship leader, I'm on the platform. Um, I want to lift the name of Jesus high. Um, I lay out the service um, with the, the intent of doing that. I take the songs with the intent, the scripture with the intent of doing that. Um, I work with volunteer service, um, and sometimes like I'll mess up, sometimes they mess up. Mm-hmm. Um, where worship leadership is, is also my profession, so it's, it's ministry, but it's also my profession. Sure. Um, when those roads intersect, like it, I, I find myself getting distracted mm. by when things don't go the way I, the way I would like them to go, the way that I plan them to go, and it's not like the Holy Spirit's leading somewhere else. It's like the, the idiot of the sure. You know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so, just like, how have you balanced that, like, with, with the desire to do it to the best of your ability? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think um, a lot of things, uh, there, there is grace, you know what I mean? Um, I think you should always strive for excellence because excellence is a universal language and, and, and it speaks to the worth of Jesus. It speaks to uh, the power of the message and how much weight you put into it. If, if you're, I think excellence is a big deal. Um, and so whenever I say, if you bomb this weekend, God's still going to love you, hear me that that's totally true, but you should really work to, not minim- to, to, to minimize so that you don't bomb, right? Um, so I would say um, 
Number one, having a plan is really good. Sometimes people aren't, um, don't have the aptitude to carry out the plan that you want them to. And so really pouring into your volunteers and equipping them to do well and even having feedback loops when something does go wrong, you follow back up with them and say, hey, this went wrong, I noticed it, I'm, I know you're on top of this, and I know you noticed it, I know you knew it went wrong, whether they did or not. That's just showing confidence in them, right? Um, and say, okay, how can we look ahead and not have that happen again, right? It depends. Like, we do two services at my church right now, and um, when I was at the Journey, we did five. So we had a lot of time to really try to, like, kind of loop back around in between services. But if it's just one service, I think either way, I think it's good to address it fairly immediately. Like as soon as the service is over and just say, hey, next service, this kind of went wrong on this service. Let's make sure we we kind of hit that and and really hit that hard and do that really well, right? Because right now, you know, this video didn't start on time. There's a big pregnant pause. I tried to minimize the damage in my prayer or whatever. Um, And sometimes it's okay to just like, recognize that something's going wrong and not take yourself too seriously, right? And just be like, <laughs> I guess a video was supposed to start and it didn't, so let me just pray for us, or something like that. I mean, uh, not that we want to minimize prayer either, but you know what I mean. There's a winsomeness that you can exude as a, as a leader that helps people sort of feel more comfortable when something goes wrong. You don't want the congregation feeling really awkward because something didn't go according to plan and you're just freaking out in your head, you know what I mean? So try to just keep your cool and that can happen um, the more experience you have, too, the more you can really um, get that better and better. That just kind of comes with, with reps and with experience. Does that help? Yeah. Um, but really equipping and, and helping your, your people um, as well as possible. And then I, I would say even like a pre-service meeting is always helpful just to say, here's our transitions, here's the keys we're doing songs in, this person is leading this song, I'm leading this one, all that. Drummer, you're starting this song, make sure you, you know, turn on the click on time, we don't want to, I mean, just whatever it is that you guys do, you know, you want to make sure, I call it a production meeting, but that just helps people just get on the same page ahead of time who maybe didn't see each other all week, you know? Yeah. Um, that's great. And my question is, say you have a musician or even two musicians that continuously drop the mm-hmm. ball because of lack of practice yeah. or lack of commitment. Mm-hmm. How do you go about that without trying to sound like you're putting the emphasis, like lessening the importance of theology and putting more sure. emphasis on music? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm I have a really high bar of excellence that um, you don't get on the team unless you uh, meet that. And the reason I say that is uh, you would never trust someone to be your dentist who was a terrible dentist, right? Or a CPA who was a terrible CPA. You you would go to jail probably for tax fraud if that happened, you know. So how much more important is the worship of God. And I think there is some, some leeway and different people have different uh, definitions of excellence, but it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help the musician. It doesn't help the church. And in my opinion, it doesn't necessarily glorify God whenever their music is a distraction from people being able to interact with the gospel in a consequential way because these people are terrible. Um, and case in point, uh, I'm sure, almost positive, that most of you guys have seen 
the Ocean's Drummer video. Is that true? It's so amazing, right? But uh, I, feel, I feel terrible for that drummer, and I feel terrible for that woman who is leading worship because, like, in all actuality, that should have never happened, right? This, this drummer is just like, people are laughing. I mean, it's going viral because this guy wasn't prepared, didn't know what he was doing, and, and well, well, maybe he was prepared, and this is just bad. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, the, there's just bad taste. Uh, and so uh, it, it, the people in the congregation, I wish we could have seen their faces on the video, but they're probably going, what's happening? Just like everyone who experienced it on the video is going, oh, oh my gosh. You know, like as soon as that kicks into the double, you know, whatever, um, that didn't help anybody. It didn't help the drummer. It didn't help the church. It didn't help the worship leader, right? So excellence is a good thing. It's, it's, it's a limitation for us, but it's an opportunity to make clear the gospel, and we can do that well without distractions. So my thing that I would say is um, you've had the talk with that person. It might be worth saying, listen, here's the deal. I would rather strip back and have a simpler band set up, and it's just me on an acoustic guitar and or on a piano, or whatever your instrument is, or whatever, and, and, and not have you on the team, then have you, um, because I've told you over and over again that this is important, and uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says that you have the right to play music at your church, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, if we're going for examples of musicians in the church, the mandate was, get the best, right? New Testament, we don't see anything in the, in the New Testament about musicians. We hear sing, right? That's commanded over and over again. But there's nothing about like what we do in the New Testament. And so it's not your right to serve your church through, through, uh, through playing this instrument, okay? This is a privilege. And if you want to keep that privilege, I really need you to work harder on this because it's really distracting people from the message of the gospel that we're trying to make clear, right? And so then... Um, they may hate you after that, and they may leave the church for it. I just, I'm just being honest and preparing you for what might happen, or if they're truly servant-hearted, which that's the point of it all, right? If they're truly servant-hearted with their eyes on Jesus, and you say, I would rather us kind of figure out another place for you to serve, um, even if that's on ProPresenter or that's on, you know, wherever or greeting people or whatever it is I would I would love to help you move into there because I just can't affirm that this is your spiritual like that that this that this is your gift that the Lord is asking you to use to serve his church to proclaim the gospel you know what I mean so there's I'm I'm not saying be a jerk about it like you really want to be kind and shepherding and 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 really um understand people i mean people work full-time jobs a lot of them working 80 hours a week i mean in your in your congregation and it might just be a time thing they just don't have time right so they're probably not trying to like stick it to you by not preparing it might just be a limitation that they need to ask themselves do i have the time right now so that might be more harsh than some of you guys were prepared for but i think that's that's my strong feeling so Yeah, I tell people um, whenever they're interested in joining our worship team, um, I want to make it really hard for you to be on the platform. Um, and the reason that is is because it's the most influential place in our church um, that we don't just want to let anybody on. And so you need to be excellent in your talent and your skill level and in your character, right? If you're playing on Sunday morning and then you're at the strip club on Sunday night, like, that's not good for anybody, right? So... Um, 
I just really make that explicit. And I say, why don't you come start hanging out with us? I, I rarely do auditions because most people don't do well with auditions. They get freaked out and they freeze up. And even if they're really good in real life, they do terribly on auditions. So instead, all of our rehearsals are open. And I have a few musicians that I really trust to equip and train other musicians for the work of ministry, right? And so I connect those guys. And so my drummer disciples all my other drummers. My guitar player disciples all my other guitar players. My piano, all my, you know, that kind of thing. And I tell these guys, I trust you whenever you tell me this guy's ready to be on the platform, that he's ready to be on the platform. And and empowers them to really be able to, A, do what they're called to do. The, this, the biblical mandate of, of equipping believers for the work of ministry. Number two, there's a connection there automatically because they know more about drums than I do and they can help them. So we have a lot, we have a really young, um, a lot of students in our church who um, I won't let on the platform yet. And I, I just kind of tell them, I'm like, hey, look, um, you're not there yet. And I know in a year or two you will be. So let's keep at this. You know what I mean? Um, or even if it's not an excellence thing and it's a style thing. And I, I, I don't mean to, like, say limit what you do, but we had a guy who um, wanted to come sing with us a couple weeks ago, and um, he came, and he had the greatest Garth Brooks impersonation I've ever heard in my life. That's how he sang. It was like, you know, he is mighty to save, you know, that kind of deal. And, uh, and I was just like, you are amazing at what you do, and I could never let you do that with me. <laughs> so let's figure out how you can be... Uh, used in other ways, maybe not on Sunday morning, because your country twang might not work with my pop rock kind of deal. You know what I mean? Even if that looks like maybe we do like a bluegrass week and he serves, or we put a band around him and send him out in the city to play in the honky-tonks, you know, and be a light in a dark place. I don't know. I mean, that's the first time that's ever happened for me, and so I'm still kind of working through that. You know what I mean? But I do think it's it, um, it's really a unique uh, it, you know, we really want to just do everything we do to help raise people up and not give them that mantle of leadership too early. But always be working to do that. I mean, unless they just show that they are obviously have not one musical bone in their body and are never going to get there, um, which some people are that way, you know. Um, if they're not that way, it's your job to help them get there, uh, you know, uh, I would say. So, Yeah. No, you're not allowed to ask. I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, so you have five kids. I do. Um, uh, we just got married for about a little over a year. Congratulations. Yet, yeah. I'm sure they're coming. And uh, what, like, how do, you, how do you find the balance between keeping all your church and then also um, ministering your family? Yeah. What things you That's a real question. I mean, that's a, real, that's a reality for everyone in ministry. That's why Paul uh, encourages people to stay single because their interests don't have to be divided, right? So as soon as you say, I do, you say, I'm putting a cap on how much I can do in ministry, right? And, um, and that's a good thing, because now the church that meets in my home every day is my primary priority, right? So, um, but that can, that, that there can be seasons where I have to kind of say, hey, hey, babe, hey, kids, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be really, really, really busy for this two-week period we've got this initiative that we're doing and so I might be gone a little bit more than usual but in general I try to say I'll be out two nights a week that's it rehearsal night 
and one other ministry night because I work with volunteers and some of them can't make it during the day. But in general, I say, hey, you would take off work to go to the dentist. You would take off work to go to the doctor. You would take off work to do whatever. So how valuable is your spiritual formation, right? So if you need to meet with me, you can meet with me during these hours or one night a week. And if I do have a night a week, I try to kind of piggyback a lot of things onto that. So really limiting and saying, guys, you have my heart church here, but, but my priority is my family, and um, I don't want my wife to be a, a ministry widow, and I don't want my kids to be, you know, fatherless because of ministry. I don't want them to grow up hating the church because they never saw their dad. Um, so there's that. I travel a lot, which um, can present problems. So my wife and I additionally kind of sat down, and I, I present every opportunity to her, but sometimes I just kind of know, like, you just really have to exercise discernment and say, I probably shouldn't even go to my wife and ask her if I can do this. I'm just going to turn it down because I know I'm already doing too much in this season. So it definitely is, is a, an ongoing conversation that you two will need to have with one another. Um, and the best person, the best authority in that is going to be her. <laughs> so um, just say, hey, babe, how am I doing? Are you feeling loved? Are you feeling cared for? Do you feel like you're my number one? I don't want you to ever feel like you're like the church is my mistress, like my ministry is my mistress. You're 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 my wife. The church isn't my wife, and you just need to feel like you have the go ahead to tell them what's true, you know. And don't feel like you can't because it's un, unholy or unspiritual. Because yeah, ministry is important and all that. Because eventually it does catch up with you. And some of my most lively fights with my wife, which we do fight, you know. Uh, are because I'm a very driven, ministry-minded man. So she will feel sometimes like, hey, I really don't feel loved right now. I really don't feel like you actually care. I feel like I'm kind of taking a back seat to X, Y, Z, whatever that is. So just that honesty there has to be the foundation of your marriage. Yeah. Um, it's, it's my first time not being in a mega church, right? We're, we're three years old. This is a, a very new church. Um, God has grown it very quickly. There's over a thousand people, but it's 80% people who have come to know Christ in the last year or two because the people who are in this church are loving Jesus so much that they can't help but tell everybody about it, which is, that's very, very encouraging. And it's very rare for me to see something like that, you know? Um, but with that, I'm a new believer, I don't even know what tithing is. I don't know what giving is. Why should I give my money away? So church of a thousand people and our budget doesn't anywhere near reflect that. So I'm having a a new insight into the life of uh, the church planning world like I've never had before. There's a lot of things that, you know, you kind of know theoretically and from talking with friends who have walked through it and you kind of learn a lot about that. But I'm I'm, I'm having to, to relearn how to do a lot of things because the solution now is not like if I need to buy it I buy it if I need to pay someone I pay them now it's like how do I how do I get a little more creative um, and not see limitations as limitations but as opportunities to to innovate and do something uh, different you know what I mean so so that's frustrating sometimes because I really wish I had to pay my graphics guy more than $150 a week you know or I wish I you know that kind of thing he's working like 40 hours a week and he's making $150 a week it's insane so um so that's frustrating for me, um, but I just kind of have to keep my eyes on Jesus. The most 
encouraging thing about it is that I'm building a worship culture from the ground up. I'm not having to dismantle or tear down bad thinking or bad theology or whatever. Um, these people don't even know who Moses is. They think he built an ark and parted the waters whenever the flood came down and just the, the boat stayed on dry land. I mean, they don't know anything. That's, if I told them that was true, they would believe that, right? So I'm building from the ground up on a foundation that's not been previously built on before. I don't have to undo faulty notions of what worship is or anything like that. That's really, really encouraging um, and also very humbling because I'm having to, like, not make assumptions. Like, if I say, you know, Moses came down from the mountain, they will know who I'm talking about or what I'm doing. So that's a really exciting place to be. Auctions are pretty big. Music town, yeah. big music scene, I guess. What's your thought on using uh, people to play in services that may or may not be Christian or may or may not be members of your church? Yeah, so um, with Austin being a, mu- a music town, it does present challenges, number one. If you're any good of a musician, you expect to be paid. Uh, so again, challenge. Um, uh, you know, uh, you have a hard time finding people who want to play for free. Uh, and when you're in a church plant, you don't have that. So um, I, I'm a firm believer that you can't that everyone on the platform is a worship leader. Uh, if you're a bass player and you don't know Jesus, you you can't lead people in worship. And your job as a bass player is not just to execute the notes properly, but to display expressively delight in the Lord, to display a belief in the words that you're singing. And you should be singing. If you're the bass player on stage, even if you don't have a mic, you should still be singing because you're displaying for the church, this is what we're here for. I'm not here to perform for you. I'm here to worship the Lord. If you're not a believer, that's not a priority to you. So uh, I, 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 do, I do think... This is not a hard, fast rule by any means, but I do think that that is very, very important um, because everyone on that platform is exerting influence over your church. Um, now, if there is someone who, um, you know, like say a special season, like like Advent, for example, and you're needing to pull together a string section and there's just not, aren't any people in your church, um, you know, they're, they're behind a stand anyway, sitting down probably in a not very well lit area, and you're not going to see their face, you're not going to see their countenance, you're not going to see if they're singing along, you're not going to see any of that anyway. So I think there's room for that, and I have in the past done a bit of that um, and, and have found that it's a great opportunity to introduce people to the gospel who might not otherwise care or know or... Um, or anything like that, and um, and I just make it my intentional goal to connect with them on a spiritual level. And so some of my team over here, I might not even hardly talk to those Sundays because I'm so focused on, and I let this team know, like, hey, these guys are not believers. I don't think they're believers. I don't know where they stand with the Lord. Uh, and so I'm going to be focusing a lot of attention so they don't feel like they're getting the shaft, you know, because I'm trying to focus on sharing the gospel with someone. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? So hard, fast rule, not so much, but I really believe everyone on the platform is a worship leader, so it's hard to lead worship if you're not worshiping, and it's hard to worship if you don't know Jesus. That's basic. I mean, that's, that's all you need. And um, 
a lot of people's preference is that, too. So don't discount that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm in the, uh, the tribe that, like, loves Coldplay and really overly produced things and lights. And I, I feel like I connect more with the Lord um, in those types of environments. And not because those environments are, like, somehow priestly in, in nature, but just I personally, in my preferential you know, brokenness, I do find um, if, if I'm going to, to shape a culture, I'm probably going to go a little bit more that direction while keeping the gospel central and, and, the, and the glory of God central to that environment, right? But 45% of the people at this conference would hate that. And that's why I'm not leading music this week. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think um, just a simple, like, when you have nothing but the gospel that's a beautiful thing. Like, don't, don't feel lesser because you don't have the ability to do whatever it is that you're looking to do. Just do what you can with the tools that you have. And then if you have a plan or a goal to move to a more of that, then, then really work out, like, how do I get there? And how do I do that? Don't see what you have as a limitation, but as an opportunity to innovate and to pour into guys and to help them. Maybe, you, maybe it's like, I can't do this today, but here are five guys that I could talk to and say, here's where I want to go. Let me train you. Let me get there. And then we'll get there within a year and a half or two years. Like, don't have such a short-sighted, narrow focus that you can't see. I do that with my players all the time. I'm like, hey, you're not here today, but in a year you will be. So let's work hard. And just because I can't can't let you play on the platform today, you still need to work hard. Because if in a year you're still there, that's a fail. So um, I want to have an electric guitar player. And right now... And the church plant, my electric guitar player is a senior in high school who's in national jazz band. So he's gone every week in November and two weeks in December. So I'm going, okay, so what do I do? You know? And then I go to someone and say, all right, you're going to be gone, so now you need to pour into this guy and teach him every part and every tone and every effect and every setting on your pedals so that he can do what you're doing as well as you can. And it's sort of like forced intentionality with building up people and equipping them to go where your vision and where God convicts you to, to take your church uh, and what contextually works for where you are. Um, does that make sense? Okay. Anyone else? So I would start just by saying your pastor is your lead worship pastor of your church. And, uh, and so uh, I trust that ultimately he understands that he's accountable before the Lord uh, for how things go in, in our church. And that does happen. I think all of us have experienced a pastor saying, I, you know, I had this sermon planned for today and you planned an entire service around this thought and this theme. But last night around midnight, I was woken up by the Lord and I had to rewrite my entire sermon and you have no idea where I'm going. And in cases like that, I mean, I think that the more that you are fluent in scripture and the more that you're fluent in your craft, um, the more you can navigate that. So, um, just prayerfully go into something 
very humbly go into something and, and trusting that God's put this person of authority over you for a reason so that you can submit to it and ultimately, if it goes really wrong, it's his fault. <laughs> Number one. But do everything you can to minimize that. And, and so um, if you have to cut a song, you know, uh, but the band is all like prepped because they, they're waiting and they've got their trigger, their finger on the trigger to start that next song or whatever. Um, you just got to be really, really obvious with where you're going. That happened to me two weeks ago. Uh, my pastor preached like 12 minutes longer than he was supposed to, and we have 30 minutes between our services to get everyone out and get a whole new crop in or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, and so there was just no way we were going to be able to do the song at the end. And, uh, and yet he was fully expecting that we did a full song at the end because he didn't realize he went 12 minutes over. So I'm communicating with my band, and I'm like, hey, we're supposed to do Revelation song. He's planning for us to come up. He's actually now introducing us to come up, and we've got three seconds before we need to start playing Revelation song. So I just go chorus, 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 or chorus, chorus, or something like that. And then, um, and then at the end of that chorus, chorus, then I pray. And that's just sort of how we went with it. So it's kind of like you're trying to communicate. You need to know, you need, your band needs to know where you're headed, uh, you have to be explicit with that. And then even beyond that, you have to be overly obvious with where you're going, right? So if they're supposed to go into the next song, for example, and you know you only have time for that song, that song ends and you just keep playing as hard as you can. Lord, thank you so much. And they're just like, well, it'd be really awkward for me to start playing the drums right now over that. And so I'm not going to. I'm going to wait for you, you know, kind of thing. Um, sometimes you just have to do that. And no one in the congregation is going to know. That, that's what happened. So, not feel weird to you, but if you're sort of the more fluent you are and the more fluid you are, the better it'll go. But that can only happen from humble submission, understanding who your spiritual authority is. Otherwise, you'll be like, no, I'm not cutting this. I'm going to do this song anyway. And we're going to start our next service 13 minutes late. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So. There you go. Yeah, and that's that's about all you can do. And, and I mean, you can plan for it. Like, a lot of times, touch base with your pastor ahead of time and go, hey, wh- wh- what's going on with your sermon today? I want to make sure that I'm, you know, really helping uh, exegete your text. Some pastors will understand what you mean by that. Some pastors will be like, what are you talking about? Um, and I want to I wanna make sure we're on time. So anything I need to know about today. I did that with my pastor every Sunday morning. Yeah. Um, how much weight do you put into like, I guess, not a better word, audience views of art? Like, if I'm choosing a song that um, I hear over and over and over again, I hate that song from like a lot of people, and I, okay, so why do you hate that song? Well, it's just too high. I can't sing it. Okay, we'll drop the key down, you know, kind of thing, because I really feel convicted by the Lord that I need to do this song. Or it's just not singable. The, 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 all that, I mean, just the way the lyrics go together and all that, just doesn't, it's just not working, and you can gauge that because no one's singing. Right? And that is our 
that's our goal. That's our task is to have people singing the gospel, singing the word of God and shaping their minds with it, renewing their minds with it, being filled with its truth and, and having our worldviews changed by that. So, but if it's something like the opposite of that where someone's like, man, I just really think we need to do like a lion. You know, I, God's not dead. He's surely alive. And you're just like, well, that's not a helpful song at all. So I'm not going to do that, you know. Um, and, and so you kind of know, like you kind of know, or above all, or, you know, like a rose, you thought of me above all, like you, you, you kind of know going ahead, like what, what songs are true, what songs are helpful, and if they're not true or helpful, then the conversation is automatically over. Someone's like, I really just want you to do Mary, Did You Know? I know it's July, but then you're like, that happened to me. No kidding. My first week at the church, this lady came up to me afterward just bawling her eyes out. And she's like, oh, it was so gorgeous today. My dad's favorite song is Mary, Did You Know? Could you do that next week? And I'm like, no. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so um, it's the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. But... Uh, uh, you know, some of those things are, I mean, you just know right off the bat. But if it's a recurring thing like the, the way the cadence is or the way these words run together or, or even if someone comes to you and says, you know, I know it says this, but I think this is a blind spot for you because this isn't true. And they explain to you how it's not true, you know. Then you okay, I didn't know that before. So you can either change the lyric or, you know, or whatever. Um, but people, I mean, music is so preference driven that I wouldn't put too much weight in you know, if someone's like, why don't you do more Jesus culture, you know, or why don't you do more Bethel, or why don't you do more hymns, or why don't you do more Hillsong, or Passion, or whatever it is, that's probably more often than not kind of what, that, that's what I'm hearing. The, the, the guy before me at this church just loved him some Jesus culture, and I don't know a single Jesus culture song. So I'm just like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, I have songs that I feel are more helpful for our, for our context, and, and then there are some songs that they're like, I think you should do this song. I listen to it, and I'm like, heck yeah, I'll do that song. You know, so does that does that help? I mean, I think so much of it is driven by your personality and your convictions. And that's a good thing that God placed inside of you and has built you up to for this time and place. Right. And some of that is you need to listen to people because you do have blind spots. And when people come to you and try to point out those blind spots, you can say, Lord, what do I do with this? And get around some guys who are older than you, who are wiser than you to help speak into that. And I've got those guys who I'm just like, hey. So I really, I mean, early on, I really hate the song Our God. What do I do about this? Because I've had 88 people in the last three weeks ask me to do Our God. And, uh, and they're like, well, I mean, is what it's saying true? Yeah, absolutely. It's Romans 8. Of course it's true. So what is it about that you don't like? It's just cheesy. Well, that's not a good reason to not do a song. <laughs> you know. So what's helpful for your people versus what do you prefer? Sometimes your preferences have to die for the good of your church, and, and that's an okay thing, too. Yeah. I like the for for example, I guess for perspective is John Mark and Dylan songs that people I am so confused that yeah. I don't even want to sing. Mm-hmm. You know. It's like I just I feel like I sang myself in a circle around. Well that's legitimate. Very confused. John Mark so, McMillan is an artist, not a worship leader. He's yeah. a very confusing writer. I 
Yeah, I think I think your 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 two your two filters that are most important, well three, is it true? Is it helpful? And is it singable? Um I know Keith Getty tried to say BS on the singability thing, but he would if, if you asked him in, in, in real life he would say, Of course it has to be singable, you know. <laughs> but with John Mark McMillan, he's an artist and he's he's a poet. Uh, but he's not a worship leader. So he's not giving mind to how accessible is this song um, from, I mean, the, the, the really great writers like Keith Getty um, are saying, how can I distill these huge, big, lofty thoughts and put it on street level for people who, who aren't going to listen to this song all week long? That's the, the only time most people in your church will hear a song that you're doing is on Sunday morning. So you want it to be accessible, you want it to be helpful, you want it to be true, and you want it to be singable. Um, and a lot of times that goes back to like letting your preference die because I'll give you just one example I really 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 love John Foreman's music I mean his, his acoustic stuff he does um, he does Your Love is Strong right and I think that song's amazing I mean it's so good and I tried to do it like three weeks in a row at my church and on that third week people were still not singing and so I'm going why why is this not happening and a lot of people just said the rhythm's too complex I can't pick it up and so then you kind of make the call like, okay, do I just keep on going and do it five weeks in a row and see what happens? Or do I just say, I'm content to sing this song when I get up in the morning to set my mind in the right, you know. Some songs are great for personal worship and not great for corporate worship. So. Anyone else? Yeah. Conversations about it, so it's easy for us to like tap into that. Mm-hmm. It's also engaging for us when we're on stage. There's some songs that are easy for us to check out on. Yeah. Right. And so you're kind of like weighing some of that. There's, I mean, it's, it's, there's obviously layers to it. Sure. How much how much of that plays into the culture that you're trying to build up? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I plan worship collaboratively. Okay. Um, for multiple reasons. Number one, because I'm training worship leaders and I want them to see my process that I go through whenever I'm planning out the liturgy and why which songs have which functions and why we order songs the way that we order them and and having a value for reading of scripture and having a value for why we pray certain ways and things like that. So I plan in community with a team of worship leaders and often try to have my lead pastor come, but in most churches that's not going to be the case. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think what I typically do is say, hey, I want all five of you to come to this meeting, and I want you to plan worship for this day. I want you to plan the songs. I want you to plan the liturgy. I want you to plan the order. Um, scripture readings, I mean, Apostles' Creed, whatever. I mean, I want you to plan it all. I want all five of you to plan, and then we'll come together. We'll compare notes, and we'll talk through, like, which songs work better. And it's really amazing whenever you're all praying and asking the same Holy Spirit for guidance whenever it comes to certain things, how you all kind of come together and you're like, hey, I have all those same five songs on here, you know, kind of thing. I mean, it's really, really cool. And sometimes you're, you're sort of like, well, that song's way better than the one that I had. 
you know. And it works really well in that regard. And then that gives them some ownership that trains them and disciples them to not just go, all right, what are five songs that I really like and like keys that kind of talk about generosity, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> um, you know, and so um, I, ultimately I'm the shot caller and I'll say, that's terrible. All you guys are terrible. We're doing this, you know. It's never happened, but if it had to happen, I could, you know. And, and they know that. Like, it's, it's like... You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. We're in a strange, um, very unique church <coughs> where our senior pastor travels to our campuses. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're, we're somewhat limited on time. Sure. Um, so, like, for, for our campus, our pastor preaches right in the 30 minutes. Yeah. In the center of the service. Yeah. And so we have to kind of put the worship set up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I tend to get in ruts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a very real, and, and most multi-site, you know, they're all, you're all trying to figure it out. So as soon as you figure out, oh, this is going to work for me, then the pastor's like, well, we're just going video. And you're like, well, that's all, you know, whatever. So um, it's, it, it's, it can fluctuate. Um, but I would just say when you know what your goal is, which is proclaim the gospel as well as we possibly can, both in the songs we do individually and in the order that we do them, um, that clarifies a lot of things, and then it kind of can go, all right, how do I actually order this um, within the confines of what I have? Maybe not, maybe the structure of the service is the same, but maybe I don't start with the, the big opening song that's fast and then move to a slow song up front. Maybe I start with, you know, that kind of thing. So, like, I would just say uh, embrace that, not as a limitation, but as a chance for you to really get creative about how you're saying the things that you're saying over and over and over and over again because the message trumps the vehicle in some ways. You know what I mean? And if that's how your pastor has opted, you can you can always go to him and if you have a better idea of, of how you guys can, can work out um, his traveling schedule from church to church or whatever in a way that kind of helps. We actually did that. I was at the, When I was at The Journey, we had six campuses and my job was to go and launch the new campuses. So I went from being at the main hub church to being at a church where either he came to or we were video. So it changed every seven months or so whenever we would launch a new campus. And uh, I would just notice whenever I was in these locations, whenever he'd come, um, I would just kind of say, like, hey, this isn't actually working for us. Is there a way that maybe, you know, you could at this campus have you know, two songs up front and three on the back, and then here we can have four songs up front and, you know, and two and one on the back or something like that. I mean, I think if you have, like, a dynamic relationship with your pastor where you're able to give input, that that's always the healthiest. Because if it's just not working and it's actually hindering your ability to proclaim the gospel, he would probably be responsive to that. But if it's just like, a, I don't like it because I'm in a rut, he would probably say, well, figure it out. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, and to some extent, it is your job to figure it out. So, um, and you can do that musically, you can do that liturgically, you can do that in a lot of ways. Um, if it's a matter of just filling the gap in time, you know, just be as creative as you can with doing that in the, in the ways that exalt Jesus the most. So.
All right, guys, it's 3.15, and I think uh, we need to give you guys some time to get to your next breakout. Uh, so, hey, let me pray for us one more time. Father, thank you that you love us and that you gave Jesus for us. And, that, Lord, you give us opportunities like this to, to gather around one another, who, people who do the same thing as we do, and uh, to be encouraged together. And I pray that you would do that today. God, encourage us, affirm us, uh, convict us where we're uh, maybe believing things that aren't true, and, 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 then, and then, God, reinforce what is true in our hearts God, I pray for a holy innovation and a creativity to not get into ruts, but to, to be reinvigorated more and more every day in the fact that we get to proclaim your gospel to people who desperately need to hear us, including our own hearts. And uh, thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.